We know from Deuteronomy 28 that he warned them, right? Deuteronomy 28 uh, records some of the Mosaic Covenant, records this if-then arrangement with God and his people. If they obey his commandments, he will cause them to prosper. If they don't, he will not. Correction will be coming. If that warning wasn't enough, if God's favor to them in the past, his power in their life, his provisions for their nation, if all of that wasn't enough, they've got the warning. And then about 150 years before Daniel, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 39, uh, we read that Isaiah, the prophet, actually tells King Hezekiah of Judah It's going to be Babylon that's going to be used by the Lord to come and to correct the evil in this nation. And what we're seeing is that God is giving his people into the hands of a wicked king. And even the hands of a wicked king are useful tools for the Lord to accomplish his will, to correct and redirect his people and to invite his people back into relationship with himself. Uh, Let me read you Isaiah 39, verses 5 through 7. It's on page 599 if you want to read that whole chapter yourself. We are reminded that the people of Judah got warning after warning after warning. So if you're a teacher, think of the kid who sits in the back of the class and you've warned them 10 times, 15 times. It's the middle of the semester. It must have been a hundred warnings by now. God's had enough. Here's what Isaiah records in Isaiah 39. The first four verses record that Hezekiah is king and that an envoy from Babylon has come to visit. Hezekiah takes that envoy throughout the kingdom, throughout the temple, throughout his palace, shows them all of the riches And then Isaiah shows up and says, that was dumb. That's in the Hebrew somewhere, I'm sure. Verse 5 says, Then Isaiah says to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Verse 6, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. That's pretty specific. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, verse 7, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Sound like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And they will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. We see warning after warning after warning to God's people. And quite honestly, if we look at our own lives, don't we see warning after warning after warning? Captivity was brought about by the people's sin. It was directed by a sovereign God. And I think if we're honest, the idea that God holds his people accountable creates a little bit of discomfort in our lives, which is interesting because accountability is something that we like and and that we expect in most spheres of life if you go 100 down garden valley parkway we hope and expect and you will deserve to get a ticket and maybe get your car impounded if you're a student in your school and you don't go to school you're in the class but you don't attend the class you don't study for the test you don't do your homework we hope that that teacher is not going to pass you because you haven't learned anything you haven't 
put in the work. You deserve to not pass. It's not a wicked teacher who doesn't pass you. It's a teacher who actually wants what's best for you. If you're an employer and you lie, if you're an employee and you lie in the job application process and you say, I've got all of these great credentials and I've done all of these wonderful things and six months into the job, your employer finds out that you don't have any of those credentials and you haven't done any of those wonderful things, right? You deserve to be fired. Don't you, you deserve to be let go. It's not a wicked employer that does that. It's what you deserve. But somehow there's this tension in our hearts when we get to God holding anybody accountable. It almost seems mean, wicked, unfair, and, and vindictive. And every time we bristle at that, we just we've got to be reminded of this, this tension, this conflict in our hearts between the pride and the wickedness that exists and the perfect holiness God. It butts up against each other every single time we bristle at the thought that, that there could be consequences, at the thought that God would even allow or bring into our lives difficult things as a corrective tool. I think part of it for us is the belief that maybe God's job is to make us happy. And if we do our part, his job is to do his part and make life easy. There's a sense that we have that we deserve good. And if God is actually good, right, we put him to the test. If God is actually good, he'll agree with us and do good for us. We criticize participation trophies for youth athletics. And we say, we're not teaching our kids. We're not, we're crippling, we're sabotaging their education. We're sabotaging their development. But if we look in our hearts, many of us want spiritual participation trophies from the Lord. Many of us want spiritual participation trophies. Jesus gave everything, asked very little. We give very little when we ask for everything. Put yourself in Daniel's situation for a minute. You are of the royal line, uh, according to the Isaiah text, possibly descendant from the king, uh, part of a, a kingly line. Maybe you were hoping to be king one day, or one of your friends was, and so you were going to just latch your train to that one. Um, high expectations, high hope, high privilege. Now you're in Babylon, and you're in captivity. And, and imagine what it must be like to have your nation conquered. And so as you're being led out of town, there's a good chance you saw the Babylonian soldiers sacking the temple, destroying objects meant for worship, taking, rioting, looting. You may have seen your own parents, your own family killed. As you're marching out of town with the other youth at 13, 14, 15 years old, you may have watched as townspeople were beaten in the streets. And so now you're in Babylon trying to just keep your nose clean, trying to not make waves, trying to do whatever they tell you, hoping you live. And as a royal, Daniel and his friends find themselves in this privileged position where they're offered the same food the king ate. This is not the king's leftovers. The king's chef is preparing food and he's got Daniel and his friends in mind. Some of it is, is for them. They have the best, right? This is the... This is the grass-fed and the organic. Um, this is the fresh-caught, uh, depending on your preference. As part of this three-year brainwashing program, they're taught education, new language. Uh, they're given new names. I'll read them to you. 
So you can see how every act by King Nebuchadnezzar was a strategic move to show power over the God of the Hebrews, was a strategic move to separate them from their past, their culture, their faith, their family, and to bring them into, and to absorb them into Babylonian culture, to wipe the slate clean, and to start new uh, and worship Babylonian gods. Daniel's name meant God is my judge. His new name, Belteshazzar, means Bel will protect me. Bel is another name for Marduk, one of the primary gods of the Babylonian people. Uh, his friend's name, Azariah, which means Yahweh is my helper, is changed to Abednego, servant of Nebo, another god. Hananiah, which means Yahweh is gracious, is changed to Shadrach, which is commanded of Aku, another god. Mishael, whose name means who is like God. There is no other. Who is like God is his name changed to Meshach, which is rendered who is like Aku. So they are trying to wipe the slate clean and, and put them into the king's service. Things have gone from bad to worse, haven't they, for Daniel and his friends? Things have gone from bad to worse. And I just want to maybe pause for a minute and ask you, what do you think when, when the rails are... The, when the cars fall, go off the tracks in your life? Uh, what do you do when, when things go from bad to worse? Health goes from bad to worse. Difficulty in your family, in relationships, at work, financially, go from bad to worse. What do we do? Some of us pout. Some of us don't get out of bed. Some of us medicate. Some of us get really angry. Some of us get very demanding of God. Some of us just quit on God. God, you have clearly failed in your part, so I've got to fix this mess you've made, and, and I'll take care of it. Some of us go into uh, super control, super fix-it mode, believing we can make anything better. Uh, for me, at least, that's, that's kind of where I land when things get difficult, uh, when things get ugly. Uh, my fleshly default is to believe that I can fix anything with enough fortitude and, and you know, even as I say that, consider the entirety of God's word would beg to differ. Uh, but still in our flesh, we have these responses that come out. We see uh, what's in our hearts. We see uh, what's buried deep when things go from bad to worse. So let's read verse 8. And I want you to see that as God gives his people to this wicked king, Daniel gives his entire self to God. Verse 8 says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Daniel resolves to not defile himself. Now keep in mind, nobody is watching. Daniel's about 800 miles away from where his family, if they're still alive, would be. We don't get the sense from the text that anyone else is really weighing this decision. Uh, the assumption is that the rest of his peers, except for his three friends, have caved, and they're just going to do whatever is necessary to stay alive. And if they can get ahead, if they can uh, get a leg up and get a promotion into a privileged position in the king's palace, that's good too. We see that Daniel is, is standing alone when no one is going with him. Daniel is standing alone when nobody is watching. Daniel is standing alone even though the cost 
is great, right? The expectation is that he's going to be passed over. The expectation is possibly even that he's going to be punished, possibly even executed if he rejects, if he disobeys the orders of the king. Daniel shows us that a standing firm, that a posture of standing firm is a function of remembering the commands of God when the world's demands pull us in the other direction. To stand firm, you actually have to know the commands of God, right? To stand firm, you actually have to know the God who gave the commands. Sometimes when we think about standing firm, we think that it's a derivative of long solitude, a long time pouring in prayer, long time seeking the Lord. How are we going to do this as if we need a plan that's, that's downloaded about how we'll stand firm? What we see more often in Scripture is that standing firm is simply doing what God has always commanded, even when no one else is, even when the cost is great, even when nobody is watching. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 is a fantastic passage that actually uses this same verbiage. It says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. It's not complicated. Stand firm and hold to the, to the traditions that you were taught. You can't stand firm if you're trying to save your own skin, can you? You can't stand firm if you're looking out for number one, can you? As a position, standing firm is contingent on God's glory, God's purposes, meaning more than my comfort. As a direction, standing firm is only possible if God's purposes mean more to me than my hobbies, even more than my family. Uh, as a matter of understanding, standing firm is only possible when I know His word. You know, we heard from we heard from DHS two weeks ago. Uh, it was a neat morning. Uh, some of you know Alan, who shared a little bit about uh, the situation in our county and the needs of our families and the needs of our children. And if you were to be responsive to that, or if God were to prompt you to get involved with foster care or adoptive care in some way, you would go through classes, and in those classes, they would talk to you a little bit about what happens to kids that are pulled out of their homes and maybe don't know their mother, don't know their father, have no connectivity with them, maybe have never had that. And, and they're going to talk to you a little bit about what that hap what that does to a child, what that does uh, for their social skills, what that does for their sense of identity, what that does to their sense of purpose, right? And, and as they explain all of those things, you just see this incredible uh, barrage of challenge um, before some of these kids. And so it's what makes what DHS does so incredible. What's, it's what makes foster and adoptive care so incredible is you literally get to do for a child in a microcosm what God does for us when he adopts us, uh, and you look at that child and you say, mine, ours, come be a part of this family, and you create a place for them. But, but we see in that training, we see when we talk to DHS people, without that family, without that identity, so many parts of life crumble. And so we've got to just understand that we are all spiritual wards of the state for God adopts us. 
before God adopts us. And so if we have not been made part of our of his family, right, everything else starts to crumble around us. We are all spiritual wards of the state until God adopts us. And so for Daniel to be in this situation, it's not simply knowing the commands of God. It's not simply having the courage to follow through with the commands of God. Both of those are critical. But standing firm is fundamentally an extension of what's already happened in your heart. Where God has made you his. You know who you are. You know whose you are. And what matters to him is more important than the circumstances or possibly the pain and suffering or possibly the cost in the present. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Romans 8 talks about adoption. It is for all who are led by the Spirit of God or sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption by the sons as sons, by whom we cry, Father. So the question this morning is simply, have you been made a part of the family of God? Have you been adopted? Because we can't talk about standing firm and not come back to the fact that until that happens, we're all floundering. We're all swept away by the current of culture. Question this morning, are the demands of life dragging you along, or is the word of God guiding you in all circumstances. The demands of Daniel's life were pretty severe. Are the demands of life dragging us along, or is the word of God guiding us? I think many of us are being dragged along, maybe maybe more than we're aware. Um, it seems to touch every sphere of life. It seems to touch marriage. Many of us are just happy to, to still be married. When we know Ephesians 5, that the commands are for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Like that's so much more than flowers on birthdays, isn't it? Think about parenting, children. We know from Deuteronomy 6 that the command is to show our kids, teach kids the commands of the Lord, instill them on their hearts while they're young. If we look at our schedules, it may show that many of us value more how our kids do in athletics, with the arts, with school, all these other spheres that we want them to be successful in, more so than are they seeing Jesus, more so than are they learning his commands. Think about our entertainment. Ephesians 4 tells Christ's followers to put on a new self with holiness and righteousness and to put away all unwholesomeness. The things that we watch and the things that we listen to, we just invite it right into our homes and into our lives. And set it aside by saying it doesn't bother me. Setting aside by saying it's not that bad. Setting aside, it's better than so many other options. How about materialism? Matthew 6 tells us to store up treasures in heaven, to not hoard things here on earth where the text says moth and rust destroy, where they can be corroded, where they can be destroyed, where they can be stolen, where we can lose them, where they can be taken. You know, I think migrant workers are a really great example here. Um, in 2016, almost half a trillion dollars was sent by migrant workers around the globe back to their country of origin. 
So they're working in a country that is not their home to make money to send to people back home. Half of a trillion dollars. And so uh, often what you will find is migrant workers do with very little. Right? They live very frugally. They work very hard. They do jobs that virtually no one else will do. And then they send a huge portion of it back home. Because their time in whatever country they're at, wherever they're working, is for the singular purpose of supporting people back home. Wouldn't it make sense that if we were storing up treasures in heaven, we would be like migrant workers and that we would work very hard and we would do jobs that no one else wants to do to store treasures in heaven. That we would have this singular focus of storing up treasure in heaven. And so I just kind of walk through these things because I, I think it's critical to consider that Daniel didn't get to verse 8 by caving every time life got difficult. Daniel didn't get to verse 8 by occasionally choosing to follow God and occasionally choosing to do what is easy. We're going to see in Daniel a consistent pattern of obedience to God in all situations. And so when we go through these different spheres, marriage, parenting, our, our resources, our time, uh, our talents, our treasure, all of these things, it, it points back to our hearts and it causes us to say, is there a consistent pattern in my life of choosing to obey God when it's easy, when it's not, when people are watching, when no one is, when there's no cost, when it's of great cost? Because we want verse 8 to be true of us. We want to be resolved in our hearts. We want to stand firm, but for the most part, we're not doing anything to prepare us to do that. The last point this morning is, is we're going to see that God gives Daniel favor in the eyes of the king, and in the eyes of the king's court, and in the eyes of the chief of the eunuchs. Uh, let's pick it up in verse 9. We'll go through chapter 21, verses 9 through 14, record Daniel's ask of the chief of the eunuchs. Daniel says, please don't make us defile ourselves. The chief of the eunuch says, well, if you don't, I'm on the hook and I might die. And that's not good. Daniel says, well, I got an idea. What if you give us the food that we desire that won't be offensive to our God for 10 days? And if after 10 days there's no change, if after 10 days you don't see us outperforming our peers, you can do whatever you want to us. Daniel takes the entirety of his trust and his life and places it in God's hands. Let's pick up in verse 15 at the end of the 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables as these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King 
Cyrus. Daniel asks for ten days, puts his life in God's hands, says to the chief eunuch, if we're not looking better, do with us what you will. Daniel is ready to die for this. Daniel is resolved not to defile himself no matter what the cost. And God comes through. And God always has a bigger plan, doesn't he, than what we can see? Not does He doesn't just come through after ten days. He comes through after three years where the king himself interviews everyone and discovers that these four men were head and shoulders above the rest. Okay? This isn't because they were doing push-ups every night. This isn't because they were working extra hard. God gave them the tools that they needed. God blesses them with favor among men, favor from the eunuch, favor from the king. And part of this idea of standing firm is the increasing awareness that God has more resources available to him than what we see around us. Part of standing firm is understanding that God has more resources available for his will and for his purposes in and through our lives than what we see around us. Daniel and his three friends must felt alone, must felt like they had no phone a friend, no uh, person to call, no help. And God gives them favor with the chief of eunuchs. God gives them favor with the king. Part of standing firm is believing God's got a plan even if we can't see it. Part of standing firm is believing God has a plan even if we can't see it. And isn't that the essence of the cross? Isn't that the essence of what Jesus did? Jesus comes, lives this perfect, sinless life, offers his life up on the cross, offers his life, and then despair, right? Then hopelessness, right? His disciples scatter. Where shall we go? What shall we do? Right? When it seemed darkest, at their lowest point, the greatest moment in history is birthed as Jesus is resurrected as his people mourn and weep in despair Jesus is resurrected and hope is made possible for all of us Daniel took a step of faith he took he stood firm and God said I've got this God said I've got this where in your life do you need to hear God's got this where in your life do you need to hear God's got this that he has provisions that you can't see a plan that you're not privy to. Daniel's not trying to save his skin. Daniel's not whining about his circumstances. Daniel's not quitting on God. He's resolved to not defile himself, to continue to do what the Lord has already commanded. God's favor also means that Daniel was blessed with tools for the job. You know, as we think about difficulty in our lives, whether it's corrective difficulty that the Lord's brought on or just the difficult part of being a human being in a fallen world, we see over and over in Scripture that God gives his people the tools for the job that he's sent them to do, right? We've said before, if God sends us, he goes with us. If he calls us, he goes with us. If he's got a job for us to do, he gives us the tools to do the job. And so when we when we say, I, I can't, I won't, I don't have the tools, I'm the wrong guy for the job, I can't do it, Lord, what we're saying is, God, you're not enough. God always prepares us. God always gives us the tools for what he calls us to do. 
We see even that Daniel has special gifts for interpreting dreams and visions, incredibly significant in Babylonian culture. Those gifts are going to be used to give Daniel a platform to show God to this wicked nation, to show God to the world. God gives Daniel the tools needed for the job that he's called him to do. The chapter ends with verse 21. It says Daniel lives there until the first year of King Cyrus, which is interesting because that means that he lives in captivity for about 66 years. The people are only in captivity for 70. So Daniel is going to die in captivity. Daniel's not going to see his family if they're alive again. Daniel's not going to get out. Daniel's not living for a happily ever after moment. Right? The bow on the story is not Daniel gets out. He goes and he finds his family, and everything is restored. Daniel doesn't get out, but he lives and learns his purpose in captivity. He lives and learns his purpose in captivity. In a room this size, we're, we're all bringing things in this morning, circumstances that we want God to take away, People that we want God to take away, challenges, problems, health issues, financial issues that we wish weren't there. And and so um, from Daniel chapter 1, can we see together that when those things flare up, when those things are present, that God is doing something, God is saying something, God is inviting us into something. And, And so we don't need to try to maneuver around them. We don't try to figure out an elaborate ploy to to make sense of it all, we really just be faithful to what he's called us to do. And it creates some gray area there, right? Because who decides, who defines what God has called us to do? And so that's where we lean on each other. Uh, It's a significant part of why we do home groups. You know that Daniel has his three friends. How significant is it that the Lord gives Daniel these three other men to walk the journey of faithfulness with? It takes companions, doesn't it? takes incredible courage, doesn't it? It takes incredible conviction. Again, as we go through the next three months, um, we're going to have a bunch of Daniel moments. We're going to have a bunch of stand firm moments. Many of you have already shared, even in the last week or two, how you've seen in your own life or in the lives of those near you, disaster and then the faithfulness of the Lord. Right? And the severity of the disaster seems to just heighten our senses for seeing and for savoring Jesus. As we close this morning, I want to pray uh, for us, uh, but I really want to invite us to begin to anticipate the work of the Lord. I want to, want to invite us to look at those areas of difficulty and to anticipate that God is working, God is speaking, He is preparing us, that we would stand firm, trusting in the perfect and completed work of Jesus Christ, even in our circumstances, even when the cost is great, even when no one is with us, even when no one is watching. Let's pray. Lord, we see stand firm throughout Scripture. We see examples of those who did and those who didn't. We're given Daniel, Lord, to understand what it looks like to stand firm, what it looks like 
to hope in you, even when circumstances seem hopeless. We're given the story of Daniel to not just see Daniel, but to realize that it is the God of Daniel who makes all of this possible. And so forgive us for the sin of trying to control. Forgive us for the sin of trying to manipulate. Forgive us for the sin of trying to fix. Forgive us for the sin of thinking we can do this without you. Lord, speak to our hearts. Show us our fleshly response, Lord, where we try to take matters into our own hands and blunt the work that you're doing and silence, Lord, the voice of your spirit speaking to us, believing with just enough effort we can get the job done. We can get out of the hole that we're in. We can make our circumstances better. Lord, open our eyes to your work. That rather than running harder, trying to fix and trying to control, we might let go and discover, like Daniel, that you're faithful, that you're good, that even in a wicked country with a wicked king, there is no one, there is no circumstances, Lord, that exist outside of the realm of your power and control and your influence. I thank you, Lord, that we serve a sovereign, all-powerful God Saturate our hearts with that truth today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.